Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. If you have a pew Bible, you want to use the copy there in the pew, uh, you can find that on page 864. Luke, chapter 7. We will read verses 36 to 50. Luke, chapter 7, 36 to 50. This is what the Holy Spirit says through the author Luke, who was a doctor. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he called the larger debt, canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little and he said to her your sins are forgiven then those who were at the table with him began to say to themselves who is this who even forgives sins and he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace
Let's pray together. Lord, your love, your love is a mystery. When, Lord, when, when we consider our sinfulness, our great sinfulness, stacked up against your holiness, your love is a real mystery. It is a mystery to us for sinners in general and for us in particular, for me in, in particular as I preach, the fact that you have died for me. For us, I pray, Lord, now that you would that you would assist me to serve this church. Even as I begin to preach your word, I pray that you would assist me with Holy Spirit anointed preaching, so that I can serve this church. Oh Lord, we want to be exposed in this text. We pray for that exposure, whether it's convicting, whether it's encouraging, whether it's comforting, whether it is absolutely just slaughters us. Lord, we want to be totally, we want to surrender ourselves now before this text. And we pray for your work. I am helpless without you. So I pray for your grace and your strength. Reveal your love afresh to all of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now the title of my sermon tonight is From Prostitution to Praise or on getting in touch with your inner Pharisee. Luke chapter 7, really it deals, chapter, verses 36 through 50, deal with those two penetrating issues, moving from prostitution to praise, and the issue of Pharisaism. So, I want to begin this way. Uh, most people, when they read this account in Scripture, they read it as referring to primarily the immoral woman who is referenced here in this text. But I want you to know from the very beginning, even before we start, that this text is much more than that. Jesus is here evangelizing a Pharisee. That is what we have taking place in this text. Now, before we get into the text, what I want to do is I want to paint a picture, really of what Luke's picture, what he's painting before us, so that you can, you can envision the scene that this is taking place in. So turn to chapter 5, and let's start in chapter 5, and you'll notice in verse 1, We see in chapter 5, verse 1, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, this is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake Gennesaret. Chapter 5, verse 12, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Chapter 6, verse 17, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Notice the phrase, a great multitude of people. Chapter 7, verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Chapter 7, verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. So what we see here are crowds. There are crowds following Jesus. And as Jesus' ministry begins, to, uh, as he is preaching and teaching the word, multitudes are now following Jesus. 
you have seen multitudes follow uh, Hollywood stars or rock stars or artists, musical artists. But in this case, Jesus is a prophet, and there are crowds beginning to follow him. Everywhere he goes, people are following him. And Jesus is this great pop prophet, and it says there in verse 16 that fear seized them, and they said a great prophet has arisen among us. So now Jesus is someone of great notoriety, and people are following him everywhere, and these crowds are pressing in against him. But who, are, who is in these crowds? Who, who was in these crowds? Crowds are, as you know, made up of individuals. So if we go to Thunder Over Louisville and there's 10,000, 15,000 people there, we are all part, individually make up a part of the whole. And in this case, there are crowds and there are individuals in those crowds. And so it makes me ask the question, when, when Jesus is addressing these crowds, it just makes me wonder who were in these crowds, what type of people, from what sphere of life. And... And in this case, what we see is that there are, there are people who are opposed to Jesus. We see people who are following him. We see people who are curious about Jesus. Well, the question I asked myself as I was studying this passage is, I wonder about this woman. Surely this woman who that we read about in this passage in chapter 7, 36 through 50, at one of these occasions must have been there when Jesus was preaching and teaching. She, this immoral woman, this presumed uh, prostitute, she would have followed Jesus. She would have somehow, sometime, someplace, been where Jesus was preaching and teaching. And maybe in her shame, and maybe in the shadows, she would, have hide, she would be hiding around the corner, just peering in to try to hear what Jesus had to say in her broken life. Imagine her. Imagine her standing in a crowd uh, and in the shadows, just, just ever so... Uh, softly, wanting to listen, to hear maybe what Jesus had to say to her. So Jesus is going around, he is preaching, he is teaching, and people are responding to the message that Jesus is preaching. That is, people are getting saved. But not only that, Jesus begins to receive opposition from the Pharisees. Now, if you're unaware of this, the Pharisees are a religious party that essentially started about a hundred years before Jesus was born. They were devoted to the law of Moses. They were so devoted to the law of Moses. In fact, they were devoted to the law of Moses as a means of trying to get back in favor and a right standing or approval with God because their view, their estimation was that they were being punished by God and now the Romans were ruling. And so they are seeking to establish a Davidic theocracy like they had in the past. So here's the Pharisees. They had much contact with Jesus. And in every instance that they had contact with Jesus, it's always negative. So here they are. Look back at chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20, we see, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Verse 21, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question him, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Look at chapter 6, verse 7. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with a withered hand, Come and stand here. Look at verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another, with one another what they might do to Jesus. Look at chapter 7, verse 30. Right before our passage, 
But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized. So this is the context that we now find this this passage in. The Pharisees are here, and, and it says in verse 36, this brings us to where we are, verse 36, chapter 7, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. So imagine this situation. I mean, this is awkward. This is real awkward that a Pharisee would ask Jesus to come into his house and to dine with him. Uh, Simon is one of these Pharisees. It it makes us ask the question, why would Simon invite Jesus into his house to have dinner? This is most unexpected, especially in light of the growing hostility and the tension that is rising between the Pharisees and between Jesus. This, This story is very vivid. And Luke's account of it is almost artistic. In fact, some commentators wonder if art, if Luke was more than than just a doctor, if he was also an artist. Uh, the way he describes thing, things, uh, he paints this amazing scene before us in a most compelling way. And uh, Daryl Bach, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, uh, says this: One can imagine the impression that this scene would have left among those who were gathered. Yes, one can imagine what this scene would have been like for Jesus to be in the home or the house of a Pharisee. And so, in effect, what we are receiving tonight is our own invitation to come and to be a part of this dinner, uh, to, be, to see this dinner with our own eyes, and to witness this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisee. This, in, this text is intended to leave a lasting impression on us. But the question I want, I want us to ask this evening as we begin is, what is it that God intends for this text to teach us? What specifically, then, does God want to impress upon our hearts from this passage? Martin Luther says this. He says, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands, and it lays hold of me. The Word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And this passage is after our hearts tonight. And God intends for it to run after us, to lay hold of us, and to transform us. That's the intent of this passage. That, that is what God has in mind for us. And the story begins in verse 36. The narrative starts here, and it must be treated as, as a narrative, and therefore there's really no outline to this. It's just a story, and so we will flow with this story, and I, w- I want to make ap- application along the way. But it does have a purpose And I think that the purpose that this text has is that God intends to impress upon our hearts the example of this woman. And God intends for us to see the implications of her encounter with the Savior in such a way that our lives are affected. We are to consider her example. We are to evaluate our own hearts in light of her example. And at the same time, we are to, at all costs, avoid the example of the Pharisee, of Simon. So that leaves us with this question. If we are going to emulate this woman, if we are going to avoid the example of the Pharisee, how best can we do this? How can we love the Savior like she loved him? can, Can there be any question that her passion is great for the Savior? She loves him. She is devoted to him. Her affection is clear in this passage. So let me paint the story this way. Let's pick up with verse 36. There's an invitation. Simon invites Jesus. Ultimately, we don't know why. Some have speculated 
that Simon was curious. He had heard Jesus' preaching and teaching. And Simon was a well-to-do man. Simon presumably was a rich man who lived in a very rich area. And uh, it was considered an honorable thing to invite a rabbi into the house. And normally, typically, when a rabbi was invited into the house, many people would come in and they would want to listen. They wanted to see what wisdom would fall from the lips of a rabbi. They would come in, they would be very curious, and they would want to listen. So here is Simon. He invites Jesus to the house, and Jesus comes in. But the thing is, is that Jesus is shown no hospitality and no courtesy. I mean, in effect, it would be like you inviting someone to your house, a prominent guest, and when they come, you provide them no parking, no space for them to park, and when they come in the house, you give them no greeting, you just simply give them food, and the food is distributed on a Tupperware, on, on a plastic plate, and you give them plastic utensils. I mean, that's the situation that Jesus is confronting. Here, here it is. It says that he, when he comes in to the house, look at, look at verse 36. He comes in. He goes to the Pharisee's house. He takes his place at the table. But we know from verse 44 that Jesus says, then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. So we see the lack of common courtesy that is being showed to Jesus. So there is Simon. He, presumably he lives in a, in a well-to-do area. Um, and typically when a guest would come uh, to a Pharisee's house, three things, if they were a prominent guest, would be done. Number one, the host would place their hand on his shoulder, and they would... They would give a kiss of peace. Number two, they would remove the sandals from this person, and they would pour uh, cool water over the feet of this individual so as to clean the feet and so as to show uh, common courtesy and respect to this person. And number three, there would be some kind of incense that was burned or a drop of perfume or oil was placed on the head, and this was a sign of respect. None of this happened. Jesus says in verse 44, none of this happened to him. He just simply goes in and reclines at the table. And reclining at the table in those days means sort of laying down flat on the ground uh, with your shoulder leaning on one shoulder, and your feet would be extended. So think about this. They're sitting around the table. They're laying actually around the table, and Jesus' feet would have been pointed out from his body. This explains why when the woman walks up, she can stand over his feet. Now, that is the situation and if you were there, you would have expected this relationship between the Pharisees and Jesus to become quite intense. You, your eyes would be peeled. I mean, if I was there, I would be watching Jesus and Simon and the interaction between these two, knowing the rising tension that was there existing in that time. My eyes would be peeled on those characters. And Jesus has interaction with Simon. And you would expect a conflict. But what happens next, you would not have expected. What happens next, no one would have expected. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the, Phar at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So a woman comes in. Uh, her name was not on the guest list. It would appear that she was a prostitute. And to be sure, her reputation preceded her into this house. Uh, no one was prepared for her arrival. No one. And no one was prepared for what she would do next. 
seeming to be totally unaffected. This woman comes into the house, totally unaffected by her surroundings. She makes a beeline to Jesus. She stands at his feet with a jar of perfumed oil. This jar would have probably hung around her neck. It probably would have been a long jar, and this jar would have had to have been broken. It would have been a very expensive jar of perfume or ointment. And in, in Jewish tradition, it was the, these, these women were given uh, 400 gold coins, and these women were allowed to spend that much money on this perfume and this ointment. So she would have presumably taken a very costly uh, bottle and broken it on this occasion. But note this, Luke's writing seems to slow down at this point. I mean, it's like he gets very graphic with the text and very detailed. The text goes on to say that she stands there weeping. Look at the text. Look again at verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her he- with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. She she is not. Please do not be mistaken. She is not whimpering. Th- this is not a soft cry. She is weeping at the feet of Jesus. This lady is not a professional mourner. Someone who just knows how to cry at any given moment. No, 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 no. This woman was not posturing. The tears are proceeding from her heart. As she approaches Jesus, she begins to weep. She cries because she wanted to know somehow or another. She wanted to be able to make contact with this Jesus who she had heard before. Her gratitude was overflowing. Her love for Jesus was overflowing. She wanted to come into contact with Him. And she finally stands before Him and, and all of this is in her heart. And can you imagine the moment when she finally approaches Jesus, having wanted for so long to actually see Him, to touch Him, to express gratitude and thankfulness to Jesus. She finally comes to this moment and her emotions overwhelm her. She has no more ability to stand there. She is a mess. She is an emotional mess. This moment is way too powerful for her. She is overcome by emotion. Quite frankly, she's a snotty mess. I mean, really. She's crying. She is blowing her nose. All right? Her hair is probably everywhere. She's, her eyes are all puffy. Her nose is swollen. I mean, she's a mess. Men, us men, we have a, we have a way to kind of hide the tears, don't we? You know? But when a woman cries, I mean, really cries, I mean, really gets after it, <laughs> you know it. There's no mistaking it. And this woman here is seriously, she is weeping in the presence of Jesus. She's completely broken. And the volume of her tears are evident. It's clear in the text because it says that the volume was so great that she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with her own hair. I mean, it's so wet that she can wipe his feet. And then she breaks this bottle of ointment which fills the room. Now, I want you to note something. In all of this, she never utters a word. And yet her actions could not be louder. How her affection and devotion is clear. Without any sensuality of any kind, this expression of love is driven by her knowledge of how much she has been forgiven. Which is why the point of this text which, which is pressed home later, is he who has been forgiven much, loves much. 
But in order to love much, friends, you must know that you have been forgiven much. Let me speak into your life now. I've painted a picture. Let me speak personally into your life. In this text, we are called to emulate the example of this prostitute. How? First, we are to emulate her example by recognizing our many sins. Recognize your many sins. Recognize your many sins. Verse 47. What does it say? Verse 47. Therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven. Her sins are many. Uh, She has come into contact with the reality that her sins are great. And we must emulate her example by recognizing our many sins prior to conversion. And then he tells this parable of a debt in verse 41. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. And he asked the question, now which one will love more? Which one will love more? And friends, this is a reminder to us of our sinful debt prior to our conversion. Our debt was no different. We had a debt too great for us to pay. Way too great for us to pay. It is mounting up, mounting up, mounting up. And this is a reminder for us. Our sins are many. How aware are you of your sins prior to your conversion? How aware are you? How aware were you? How aware were you when you were converted? Uh, John Stott says uh, very wisely, it must be said that our evangelical emphasis on the atonement is dangerous if we come to it too quickly. What does he mean by that? He means this. If it is introduced too quickly, if we introduce grace and the atonement too quickly without articulating a clear foundation for the depravity and sinfulness of man, if we introduce that too quickly, we are prone to abuse the gospel. What shall we do? Go on sinning that grace may abound? So we only cry, hallelujah, praise the Lord, after we first cry, woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. And that is the order that we must keep. So we must pray that we are affected by our many sins. See, one of the problems is that you may recognize your many sins, but are you affected by your many sins? And maybe you've grown increasingly unaffected by your sins. And and I want us to realize the danger inherent within this. The the danger of growing stale, of growing cold, of becoming callous to our sins. So we are to emulate her example. We are to recognize our many sins. Number two, we are to emulate her by receiving forgiveness from God for our many sins. We must receive God's gracious forgiveness from our sins. Look at the text again, verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. Her sins are forgiven, are forgiven. Friends, you must realize that it is possible to increasingly recognize your many sins without receiving the forgiveness for those many sins. Merely acknowledging our sins is not enough. We must exercise faith in the Savior to pay for those sins. 
Even, even in our ongoing Christian life, you must learn to live as a forgiven sinner. Not merely a convicted sinner. It is not enough to say, I am convicted that I'm a sinner. God is calling you to live as a forgiven sinner. Because that magnifies His grace. Why is she weeping? She is weeping. She is weeping because she has been forgiven of her many sins. These are tears of joy. She was not crying because she was convicted of sin. This is a passionate display of affection. It was a passionate display of affection because she knew that she had been forgiven by the Savior. She is overwhelmed with emotion knowing she had been forgiven. She had been transformed from a previous encounter with the Savior sometime when he was preaching. This account presupposes a previous encounter with a Savior. It does. She must have met the Savior, maybe not face to face, but must have heard the Savior and responded to his message in repentance and faith. It's very obvious then that when she arrives, she is no stranger to the Savior. She is no stranger to the Savior. And we are to emulate her example by coming to grips with what God has saved us from. So this is an application for you. Come to grips with what God has saved you from. Have you become estranged with the Savior? I want to ask you that very personally tonight. Have you become estranged to your Savior? I mean, over the years, there's a tendency for us to to grow dull, uh, to become increasingly estranged from the Savior. Uh, You may not be as warm to the Savior as you used to be. And friends, it should be just the opposite. We should be falling more and more and more in love with the Savior, not less and less and less. I I love the testimonies of marriages when people say, you know what, I I am more in love with my wife today than I was 20 years ago. But if that's not true with a Savior, then what is wrong with our hearts? People of God, we must be falling more in love with our Savior. We have been transformed by Him. Instead of growing apart from Him, we should be growing closer and closer to Him. And the way that we do this is by learning to increasingly reflect on what He has done for us. As I said earlier, note that the woman doesn't say a word to Jesus. But through her actions, we have a loud and compelling testimony before us. The tears that fell onto the Savior's feet were the tears of joy because she knew that she had received forgiveness. Another application. It does not please God to merely recognize that you are a sinner. But you must recognize that you are a forgiven sinner. You have not only committed many sins, you have been forgiven of many sins. Isn't this great news that we have tonight? I hope that you realize this. How easy is it for us to know our sinfulness? We know our sinfulness. We, we can list, we can rattle off a list so fast about our sinfulness. You see, it does not please God to live a life with a low-grade guilt. It does not please God to live with constant condemnation. It pleases God when we turn from our sins and trust in the Savior and receive His promise of forgiveness for each and every one of our many sins, acknowledging that His sacrifice was sufficient for each and every one of those sins in specific. That pleases God. 
And in this moment, when she expresses her thankfulness, he turns to her and assures her, this woman, that her sins are indeed forgiven. He gives her this, and he commends her for her faith. So it does not please God to merely recognize your sins, but you must realize that your sins have been forgiven. Another application. Trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, not your your, your religious performance or law-keeping. We must ask ourselves, who are we trusting for the forgiveness of our sins? I'm not asking you, are you aware of your sin now in this? I'm asking you, what are you presently trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? See, people know their sins, that's not the problem. But the same people who know their sins often lack an affection and a gratefulness to the Savior that this woman is emulating for us. So what happens to us over the years, it seems that something takes place when we become increasingly less and less aware of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And, And why would that be? I think one answer to that question is that there is a difference between being disappointed with your sin and actually being convicted of your sin. I mean, how many of us would say I'm disappointed that I'm not as godly as I should be? We're all there. But are we convicted deeply for those sins? You see, some people are discouraged by their sin, but they actually fall short of being convicted of that sin, and such discouragement reveals the presence of self-righteousness and the false hope that forgiveness can eventually be achieved through obedience. Uh, If this is you, then you are like Simon. And so let me speak again into your life. You see, I think there's three types of people here that really could be addressed from this text. Uh, Number one, uh, there are people who have a tendency, and try, try to evaluate yourself here, there are people who have a tendency to abuse grace. All right? The, the, these are, this is a Romans 6. This is a Romans 6 issue. What shall we do? Go on sinning that grace may be. There's a type of people that has a tendency to abuse grace. This person, this is a person who sees his many sins. He recognizes his many sins. But he does not have an adequate assessment of the consequences of his many sins. He sees his sins, yes. He may even be disappointed with his sins, but he is not convicted of his sins, and thus he has a tendency to abuse grace. That's class number one. Class number two, there's a group of people who are dejected, and they think themselves to be beyond hope. Is that true for anybody here tonight? You think you know your sinfulness. It is so great that you have come to the place sometimes where you said, there is no hope for me. There's absolutely no hope for me. This is a person who sees his many sins and the consequences of those sins and the weight of all of those sins results in, listen to this carefully, in an undervaluing of the mercy of God. An undervaluing of the mercy of God. That is, he undervalues the mercy of God by not believing that it can save him also in his great sinful condition. And such people live in great fear and doubt. They lack assurance constantly. They live in a great cloud of discouragement. And while they're convicted of sin and its consequences of that sin, they nevertheless undervalue the mercy of God, which counterintuitively is their greatest sin. I want to to say lovingly and gently to you, if you battle with despair, 
please understand that your greatest sin is not all the things that you are battling. Your greatest sin is not believing the gospel. That mercy is for you. And it can reach you. And it can comfort you. And it can soak you. And God intends to pour His mercy upon you. God wants you to accept His free grace and love and mercy. And then there's a third group of people. And the third class of people are those who are so overconfident that they have a tendency to be self-righteous. This is the person who neither sees his many sins nor the consequences of his many sins. In many cases, this type of person is completely lost. He's totally unaware of his, his condition before God. And such a person is just like Simon. Everything's fine. The sky is sunny. The weather is warm. Everything's A-OK in my world. And it's not. It's dangerously misguided. Seriously so. And unless someone comes and rescues such a person, they will be damned forever for their self-righteousness. So we are, we are to avoid at all costs then the example of Simon. You see, Simon was getting it all in. I mean, he was seeking self-justification in effect. He is seeking self-justification through self-atonement. He is sacrificing himself on the altar of legalism in order to justify himself before God. Simon is getting it all in. He knows the law. He is following the law thoroughly. Simon is doing all that he should be doing. And he did not think after all of this that he was in debt to God. Here he is. The woman comes in. He seems to be unaffected by this situation. The woman is weeping at the feet of Jesus. And so Jesus actually has to say to him in verse 44, Simon, do you see this woman? He actually asked him that question. Do you see this woman? Because Simon did not see this woman. Oh, yes, he observed her. But he did not see her. The reality is Simon needed to emulate the example of this prostitute. Simon, you know what you need to be like? You need to be like the prostitute. The fact is, the only thing Simon saw in his depraved mind was her sin. That's all he saw was her sin. Because he was self-righteous. What do you see when you look at others? What's the first thing that you notice when you see others? I I know you're out there. I know that some of you have this tendency. Uh, CJ, in his book, uh, Humility Chronicles a Situation, where he's in a Starbucks, and he's sitting in Starbucks, and this man walks in with his great suit, it's all tight. It's all, he's got nice hair, uh, and, it's, and it's all combed perfectly, and he's sitting there with his nice suit. He's got his Mac, Apple laptop sitting out. He's typing away on it. He is, he's got his business papers out, his legal pad. He's got a nice pen, fountain pen in his pocket. He looks great. Tie, it's all snugged up perfectly. Nothing's out of kilter. It looks really good. He's eating a bagel. And while he's eating the bagel, uh, he's enjoying this bagel. He is doing his business. And when it comes time to, to pack up, he is getting his things together. He grabs his nice leather uh, briefcase. He zips everything up. He gets his papers together. And he begins to walk out the door. And lo and behold, there's a little cream cheese on his mustache. Never knew it. There he goes. He walks into the world, Mr. Business. Mr. Successful, and he's got cream cheese, and the whole world sees the cream cheese on his face. And, and I think the application for us then is, with that is this, 
is that you are out there. If you are a person who always points out and notices the sin of others, I want you to know that is a big blob of cream cheese on your life, and it is screaming at you. Everybody sees how annoying and obnoxious that is. People see that. Always pointing out, always critical of somebody else, always saying, look at this person. Can you believe he did that? Look at this. And, and it's just constant criticism. That's a big blob of cream cheese. Friends, don't be like that. We must not be like that. Application. By the grace of God, let us avoid the example of this self-righteous Pharisee by evaluating ourselves honestly. You, you, you see, you must stop evaluating yourself at the standard of your neighbor. Uh, the bar is way too low in that situation. The, the, especially when you're looking at the weakest Christian you know, and you're comparing yourself with the weakest Christian you know, as if somehow that should be comforting to you. Look at this guy. You know, I'm doing better than he is. Well, duh. Look at his life. That is too low of a standard. We are to face ourselves with the standard of Scripture. Compare yourself with Scripture. Look at the bar of Scripture, not the weakest Christian you know. Oh, no, we must evaluate ourselves at the bar of Scripture, at the bar of God's holy, righteous, and perfect character, and stop comparing ourselves. We must test ourselves at the bar of Scripture. But what happens is, instead of living a faithful and obedient life, you have come to the point where you compare yourself to others who are presumably doing worse than you in order to feel better about yourself. And the reason why you do that is because you are self-righteous. And in reality, you're wicked and you're seriously misguided. And you see and you love the role of being a cop for Jesus. You love that. You just love being a cop for Jesus and pointing out what is wrong with everybody else. You know what we need? We need a lot more firemen. We need a lot of firemen who are on a search and rescue mission who are seeking to stick their neck out on the line for the sake of others. It's easy to be a cop. That's easy. You're not doing anything special if you're a cop. If you're, if you're a fireman, that's hard. I don't mean to demean cops. They do, great, they do a great service for us. But I mean, in this analogy, in this way, it's easy to point out what's wrong with other people. That's easy. What's hard is to stick your neck on the line and do something for the sake of others. That's what Paul did. Paul stuck his neck on the line, and what did he say? I am the chief of sinners. That's what Paul said. He used to be a Pharisee, but now he's a... And like Francis of, uh, of, of Assisi, he said, there is nowhere a more wretched and more miserable sinner than I. That's what Francis said. I think at some points of our life, we could all say that. But we, we've got to learn how to live like that, with that mindset. You know what we need? We need to go from prostitution to praise. We need to go from Pharisaism to praise. We need to be helped. We need great help. So, friends, in summary, let us, by the grace of God, emulate the example of this woman. Uh, let us emulate her example by recognizing our many sins. And let us recall the wickedness of our former self-justifying, self-loving, and self-righteous ways. 
We need to humble ourselves and receive forgiveness from God. We need to cease from any and all attempts to justify ourselves through our religious performance. We need to exchange our inaccurate assessments of ourselves for a far more accurate representation of who we really are at the bar of Scripture. Jesus is mighty to save. Let me end this way with some hope for you. If you feel that after this sermon, after listening to this, that you might be lost, I hope that some of you are really pondering that question. You should be. How could you come to this text and look at this situation and not seriously ask yourself if you're a Pharisee? I I, I have been wrestling with that question. I've been asking myself that question. It's a scary passage. It's scary. But... It is also a glorious passage, so let me end this way with some hope for you. If you feel that after this sermon you might be lost, um, perhaps you're one here tonight. And let me also say this. If you're one here tonight who not only is not sure if you're uh, lost or not, but maybe you're just like, man, I, I, I just feel the guilt and the condemnation and the weight of my sin, and this is for you. This is for you, and this is especially for you if you're lost. I, wanna, I want you to listen to the following words from John Bunyan who is the author of Pilgrim's Progress, okay, if you're sitting here tonight and you think you are too far gone for God to save you, then listen to these words as I close. Some think themselves beyond the reach of His mercy. God has a great arm, and He can reach you. The Lord says, Is my hand too short that it cannot save? Is my ear too heavy that it cannot hear? God has a long arm, and He can reach a great way further than we can see if He can. When we think His mercy is clean gone, and that ourselves are free among the dead, and of the number that He remembereth no more, then He can reach us. He can reach Jonah, though in the belly of hell, and He can reach thee, even when thou thinkest thy way is hid from the Lord, and thy judgment passed over from God. This, therefore, should encourage them that for the present cannot stand but that they do fly before their guilt. I will now ask thee, I will not now ask thee how thou camest into this condition, but I will say before thee, and I pray thee hear me, O the length of the saving arm of God. As yet thou art within the reach thereof, do not now go about and measure arms with God, as some men are apt to do. I mean, do not thou conclude that because thou canst not reach God by thy short stump. Therefore, that he cannot reach you with his long arm. Look again. Hast thou an arm like God? It is foolish for you to think that because God is not within the reach of your arm, that his arm is not within the reach of you. For it is long, and no one knows how long. This should encourage us to hope and pray for the salvation of anyone, that God would reach out His arm after them, saying, Awake, O arm of the Lord, and be stretched out as far as to where my poor husband is, where my poor child is, or where my poor backslidden wife or dear friends are, and lay hold of it, fast hold of it. They are gone from thee, but O thou, the hope of Israel, fetch them and let them stand before thee. I hope that you have had an encounter with Jesus tonight in this text. Come to Him. He is so merciful. 
come to Jesus and rest in his loving arms. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this text. We thank you for the example of this woman. Lord, we thank you that she wept tears of joy over her gratitude and thankfulness for her sins that had been forgiven. We want a movement of God in this church among every family, every husband, every wife, every child that is absolutely in love with a Savior. Not trifling with this world. Not pharisaical. Lord, not abusing grace. We don't want to be those people. We don't want to be abusers of grace. Don't want to be Pharisees. Lord, we want to be lovers of God because of the mercy, the mercy that has been shown to us through your hand. God, help us. Bless us. Thank you for this text. And Lord, now take it through the Holy Spirit and just twist it in our hearts and apply it so that it actually changes us and transforms us. In Jesus' name, amen.